Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. So welcome everyone. This is part two of a two podcast series that began on Monday. It marks an event that we're holding at Queen's, an international multidisciplinary symposium on the question of origin deprivation, genetic identity losses. I'm joined by John McLeod from University of Leeds, Francis Latchford from York University in Toronto, and Bunyang Han from the National University of Seoul. And I will go around the table and let everyone introduce themselves to say what their, their disciplines, their research background is. And then we'll reflect back on some of the highlights of the last four days, which have been hectic. We're tired, but I think, I think happy. I think we're happy, but content. We'll start with John. So I'm John McLeod. I'm professor of post-colonial and diaspora literatures at the University of Leeds in the UK. I'm a literature person. Um, I work in the School of English. I'm the author of a book called Lifelines, Writing Transcultural Adoption, which was published uh, in 2015. And I'm also an executive board member of ASAC, the Alliance for the Study of Adoption and Culture. And I'm delighted to be here, Queen's University, and uh, it's been a fantastic event. Really looking forward to reflecting upon it. And I'm Frances Latchford. I'm an associate professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies. And um, my areas of interest are critical adoption studies and sexuality studies, and sometimes those two things intersect in my work. And um, I am thrilled to be here and have had a wonderful week as well. I've learned a lot and met some wonderful people. And I'm, yeah, I've just been thrilled to be here. My name is Bunyang Han. I'm at Seoul National University in Seoul, Korea. Um, I come from social work. Uh, I'm a PhD student trying to write about the South Korean adoption special law from 2012 and the policy process that has been praised for including the participation of stakeholders such as adult adoptees. but we also see that obviously other stakeholders greatly benefited from that. Um, I'm part of the network that's called CARN, Korean Adoptee Adoption Research Network, um, and a more newly founded group, a DKRG, Danish Korean Rights Group. That has been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. I should have mentioned at the start, the Korean Adoptee Adoption Research Network is, of course, the partner organization that, that has made the symposium possible this, this week. Okay, so I thought we could reflect back on some of the highlights this week. We had we had two judges, two members of the judiciary called in and spoke to us and with us. I thought that was pretty good. They would both have an interest in human rights or in adoption, family law. We had a speaker from Kinship Care, at which point well, some of us uh, you know, got a bit emotional. I think she left us a little bit. Uh, Devastators may be a bit strong, but that was quite an, a, an emotive, impactful talk that she gave. But I'll hand over to you guys. If you, I hope I haven't stolen your highlight moment, but just 
you guys, any sort of thoughts or things that you thought maybe emerged from the week? Sort of some unexpected. Th- I thought rehoming of children was an unexpected theme. I don't know that I had a favorite, but I I did find everything uh, that I w- witnessed informative and engaging, and I was um, you know edified by all the different perspectives uh, that were presented and all the dialogue between people who had different perspectives. It was a a real pleasure to be at an event where people are listening and thinking together, even if they don't think the same way. So it was a a very uh, engaging uh, symposium in that respect. Um, It was interesting, the overlap in papers. So not overlap in uh, topics so much, but maybe in some of the, the ideas in terms of approaches. So there were a number of philosophers at the conference, uh, we had some uh, people who were doing more things along the line of social science, and then people also doing some work around, uh, you know, literature. Your work also in terms of literature and law was fascinating, Alice. So there were a number of things that I, I found um, very enjoyable. Thank you. I was glad to see um, some social workers joining in yes, the conversation. Um, I guess to represent. Yeah, differing sort of differing viewpoints. Um, I have a tendency to have the tunnel vision of give me contact with birth family, give me you know birth certificate, and I, I can tend to go down go down a rabbit hole or find a hill to die on. A lot of mixed metaphors. So it was good to have other voices that were saying genetic identity isn't everything, and don't forget child protection. And what do you even mean by origin? What do you mean by genetic identity or identity? So I think there were some very good, fruitful discussions on that. Um, we were joined by some Scottish adoptees who had very good debate with Sir Bernard, Court of Appeal judge, on the right, the rights of adoptees. Why can't we? Um, it's the opposite of relinquish, undo, or reject being adopted and reclaim your original identity. So there, there was that. There was some a frank exchange of views, I think, and some some good discussions. Yeah, I think there was um, a really varied series of agendas that were um, coming into play and coming into into the room. You know, that th- there were those of us who were asking those critical questions about origins and origin deprivation, and maybe the ways in which origin deprivation is something produced by an environment in which knowing your origins is understood to be essential to or the key to one to one's identity and then of course that there are others you know for whom the quest for those documents of origin is absolutely essential to their sense of being and i really was struck by the extent to which the different agendas and different ways of engaging with those questions were not incompatible yeah and that one could, you know, support seemingly contrary things at once. Um, and maybe that's one of the things that an event like this does as, as we move across a whole range of professionals is to understand the dimensionality of adoption um, and adopted life um, and how what might seem to be positions that could be contrary or at loggerheads actually aren't. They're, they're part of a of a wider dimensional conversation that we need to have with ourselves and we need to have with each other if we're going to learn from the various positions 
in which we find ourselves. So I, I found the week highly educative, not least because at the, a couple of occasions, and these for me would be my highlights, I've been challenged, you know, with, with you know, the, the ways that some colleagues have talked about even a word like identity, which for me is a very troubling, problematic word. And where for other colleagues, it's, it's, it's been a word which has been absolutely concrete and, and, and essential. And it's good to have one's intellectual position constantly under review and inflected by and provincialized by the needs um, and the expertise and, 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 and the values of others. And I think it's essential for us if we work in the wider horizon of adoption studies to have that openness. And sometimes that's not easy. I mean, you mentioned before, Alice, there was maybe a tear or two at one of those kinds of, in those conversations, because it can be for many of us who are inward of the so-called adoption triad, you know, and myself, you know, as an adoptee, as well as an adoption studies scholar, I can't help but be inside that. It can be quite emotionally trying as well. And I've come in, in, in events over the years to really value that. And I very much valued that um, this week. It was, it was, it was, it was a good week in that sense. Uh, well, for, for many reasons, but yeah, for that, as you say, to be, to be surprised, I think by, by certain conversations. I think you, you've been able to gather really people from um, a really broad range of um, disciplines, and, but also from very different you know, cultural backgrounds and geographically. Um, but then I think what I take from it is really the similarities that we have and the way that we can build on each other's work um, and how inspiring it is, not just to be allowed to talk about what we love to read and write about, um, but then hear what is going on also in other parts of the world. And you had a colleague that came into the room yesterday and said, oh my God, now they start excavating, 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 <laughs> yes, excavating. Um, and, and this has happened here locally, uh, which then resembles so much of what we're seeing in South Korea right now. And I mean, then we have another uh, participant who says, well, that's also happening in Canada. That's right. And so when we broaden it out and we just talk about um, the adoption process, procedure, history, I think that is maybe where we are in the history now that we start to unfold really what has happened and what happened at that time. Uh, so hear these stories and hear that, you know, these seems sadly to be another characteristics of the adoption and process, that that is very interesting. And I think we also feel a little bit that we need to keep on going with our work. There is more to do, but it's so amazing that you've been able to really gather so many different people from around the world. Yeah. Thank you. Um, like it. My tentacles are everywhere. I just I have a tendency to to bug people, and I need a wide you know, <laughs> wide platform for that. Um, I think that the commonalities I think across historic historical eras, you know, adoption has it's sort of always been there, and the mm -hmm. issues with it, maybe they're they're they change form, but they're maybe not that new. As I know, we talked yesterday about abandonment, exposure mm -hmm. of infants, you know, folklore, fairy tales, and then as you say, it was very very timely. It closed with Mm -hmm. colleague who came in and said what's happening in Ireland at the moment. They've appointed mm -hmm. someone to be the commissioner to handle the excavations. Obviously the tomb babies, the, the great scandal. Um, of babies in a septic tank, hundreds of them. Um, do we excavate? Do we memorialise? Some would say just let not let it go, but don't upset 
people mm. just let, let let things settle. As you say, Canada has seen mm. this. Really, many church-led initiatives have, you know, have had disastrous results. <laughs> yes, I was also um, <clears throat> taken with um, the connections between your work. Alice and Emily Hipschitz Bowitz um, around uh, what the adoptee represents, because in your discussion of law and literature, and in particular the Grimm's fairy tales, where child abandonment and/or um, removal in the context of, for instance, those fairy tales, is set up as the ultimate threat to any family, the worst thing that could possibly happen to undo a family. And uh, the the connection with Emily's idea around uh, what the uh, adoptee can symbolize in terms of the the dissolution and incoherence of family um, as it relates to uh, the Frankenstein monster, for instance, right? The the symbolism of the adoptee as a a threat or something uh, to be afraid of um, and how that plays out in so much of literature, so many stories that focus on orphans or adoptees or or even reunion stories, right? But at the beginning of the story, of course, it's seen as that sort of a threat. So the implications of that for uh, contemporary experience as it relates to adoption or adoptive relations is with us and and families and children are being groomed on tales and stories and narratives and fictions around those ideas. So that that was very fascinating to me as well about the connections on that front, but also speaks to issues around, um, you know, residential schools in Canada or Magdalene homes in um, Ireland, or um, also in terms of baby lifts and baby scoops at different times, for instance, in Korea and also in Greece. I was fascinated to hear the history about uh, uh, Greece and the 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 baby lifts essentially, or um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sh- moving them to the U.S. and trafficking. Trafficking. That's yeah. right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we've been reminded at um, this event of the absolute centrality, not marginality, of adoption to the history of the various nations and cultures that we engaged with, you know, here on the island of Ireland, North America, uh, mainland Europe, Southeast Asia. Um, it is, this. these are central to the mechanics of power and the, and the state. And it, and it gets, and this, this is also a way of responding to what Francis has raised here in, in relation to um, Emily's paper, also to um, to your own, Alice, which, which I enjoyed very much um, here at the event. As did I. It's that sense of what does the adoptee carry? Yeah. Now, for some of us, we might answer that through a kind of genetic lens. The adoptee might carry links or relations to other people. Um, that, that, that there's, there's a way of answering that question biogenetically, if you like. But there's also, now here I'm thinking of, of what Tobias presented us with. Also, Ryan's wonderful paper I thoroughly enjoyed the, uh, the other day. That sense of, of the adoptee carrying histories being produced by histories that they also kind of subsequently carry and the cultural freight with which the adoptee or the unfamily figure is burdened with, um, uh, which of course is transhistorical and, um, and, and also something which is manifest in different ways across 
across culture, you know, and that's a lot for the adoptee figure or the adopted person to have to deal with. That sense of one is on the one hand, thinking of Ryan's paper, ghostly and unsubstantial on the, yeah, but on the other hand, overburdened or burdened with so much that, 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 that one is also kind of conscious of. So I've been struck by um, the ways our conversations have, have taken us to different ways of answering that question, you know, there. What, what does the adoptee figure carry with them? And what are the fears that people project onto you if you are adopted and or have adoptive ties in terms of the interrogations you experience throughout a life? Um, you know, if you have adoptive ties or are adopted, um, where people are constantly questioning the reality of your relationships and or your identity and or, um, you know, interrogating you around, do you know your origins and all the pressures that you would experience in, in a world that is so invested in biological ties that you, you can't help but be exposed to other people's fears that they then project onto you. And then, you know, whatever age you are in your life, wherever you are in your life, if it's, come, if it's known that you're associated with and or touched by adoption, in quotation marks, scare quotes, um, you know, people just feel that that's something they can just start asking you about. And, um, and there's a w real way in which you can be diminished by the ways in which they phrase their questions about the reality of your experience and or relationships. So, um, yeah, that's something that's quite uh, profound to think about too, because I don't think, I don't think it's something that a lot of people realize when they start to ask what really are and can be intrusive questions for many people at different times and depending on the context. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm, we probably all have been asked interesting questions over the years. If you confide in someone, if you say, well, I'm searching or I'm, I'm in reunion or if at the start of your search is quite a vulnerable time because you get a wide range of, you know, some people will, will say, oh, it's lovely, you know, and they're buying into the, it will be a fairy tale. There will be the fairy tale ending. And then we have to say, oh, you want to read some fairy tales. The endings can, are not always, you know, terribly pleasant. I've had, why would you want to search? Well, it gave you away. Why would you want to, to do that? Or, oh, but you're going to offend, you know, these people have privacy rights. I hope you don't turn up on their, on their doorstep, you know, wielding an axe. Um, you know, so you do get a wide range of, of questions there. What, I mean, if you say to them, truth recovery, I'm in the business of that, which sounds a little grand, you know, but if, if you can tie it to that, if you can say, well, look around you, what's happening in Ukraine? There's war crimes, there's atrocities. What happened elsewhere? I'm not saying I was the victim of an atrocity, though I was baby scoop era and obviously have been affected and rendered a bit bonkers by experiences, you know, did dwell in an orphanage for eight months, you know, it didn't make me a better person, but it's, you know, it gave me an interest. But I think if you tie it possibly to people, they understand truth recovery. They don't necessarily understand why maybe we individually search. But if you give it that political dimension, as you say, baby scoops, baby boxes, they're not a thing of the past. There's always a fresh, you know, yesterday was so timely, mm. you know, on mm. excavations happening. There's always, always something there. I think it's interesting adoptees will know that um, how there seems to be no boundaries to the private or personal questions that can be given or be asked to an adoptee. 
And then if we do search, we run into this issue of privacy. So the boundaries between what is private and public, I think, is something that adoptees have always had to negotiate. And obviously, there are great limitations when we narrow adoption down to a single experience. So if we look at these ongoing investigations now, I think that has created a different type of uh, attention and awareness and interest in adoption. Um, and just following the debate uh, in South Korea, we there is actually a good amount of people who come out now and, and are supportive and say, well, we don't want you know human traf- trafficking either. We don't want Uh, families to lose their babies just because, you know, there is a bit of temporary financial hardship. Um, And and having that discussion, I think, uh, leads us to different options of solutions rather than the individual, um, because some are interested in finding their family and then actually building a relationship with them and some are not. And I think both of these two or other options should really be for the individual to make that choice. Uh, but looking at what the society could do and perhaps should do or must do, um, the investigations are, I think, a very interesting new phase of adoption. So I'm happy to be part of that or be able to witness that. Um, and that shows, sadly, again, just how similar uh, this system has been across borders and across cultures. Uh, I, was, I was struck last year in a, a conversation, it was about this time last year. Someone said to me, someone who, I won't say their profession because I have to live here, <laughs> but the, the, their comment to me, well, they, well, they asked, well, what do you do? What, what's your research on? And I said, well, I write about, I guess, adoption and rights and so on. And they said to me, adoption? No one adopts anymore, surely. As you, we were eating dinner, so it was okay. I was able to sort of, you know, gather my head together. Um, so sadly, she got the talk. I, I sort of gave the, she pressed the buttons and she got the talk and I said, uh, yeah, well, yes, they do. The, the, the issues of adoption, you can see them with surrogacy. You can see them with donor children. I said, uh, you know, adoptees are everywhere. I didn't add, you're not going to one. I didn't say that. That would have been unnecessary. I said, but, you know, adoptees are everywhere. I says, and, uh, you know, we, we grow up and we get kind of, we get a bit grumpy. I said, but, you know, I can assure you it's very much a timely topical thing. And then we talked, you know, I got her on to mother baby homes and we spoke of, I think I ruined her dinner in fairness because <laughs> I did, you don't want to, over your dessert, you don't want to hear about, you know, the vengeful spirits and the, so, some of the things that I, that I covered yesterday. But, you know, well, she started, her fault, she started it. Um, but I thought I just, at, the comment stayed, but no one adopts anymore. I thought, oh, there are, uh, hello, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're a, we can be a bit invisible at times. Um, you know, I mean, it's not up there with the comment of, but aren't you grateful? Because if I get that once more, I'm, I may snap. Uh, you know, yes, I'm grateful. But you know. It's a truism, isn't it? That, that wherever there's inequality in the world, people get adopted. Oh. That there's a relationship between adoption and inequality. Social, racial, you know, the ways we, we, we could unpack that. Um, that's one response. Another point to make in it, and it comes from conversation about um, the different kinds of adoptees that we are. Yeah, and that we can be. I think that's a really important point to hold on to, um, to understand that the adoptee really doesn't exist. Adoptees in the plural is perhaps the route we need to go down. Um, and, and I say that because on the one hand, I think this event has really underlined the, the variety and multiplicity of adoptee experience 
and adoptee positions, yeah, which are recognizable across nations and cultures, of course. Yeah. Um, and I say that because I think one of the other things that, that has emerged at this event, um, and this, this is what, what, what I found, you know, productively challenging, if I can put it that way, is the potential meta-narrative of the adoptee that perhaps sometimes kind of calcifies um, in certain positions or traditions or even disciplines. What do I mean here? I mean the assumption um, that the adoptee is by default a traumatized subject. Mm. Yeah. So we were, I was fascinated to hear that, um, and, and colleagues must correct me if I'm wrong, that here in Northern Ireland, if, if you're an adoptee, you have a right to, as an adult, to, uh, to free counseling. Yeah. Um, which got me thinking, okay, well, well, what's underwriting that? Is, is there, you know, some kind of assumption that adoptees are de facto traumatized figures? And that, you know, I, I would want to push back against a little bit. If I was to think about my own modest subjectivity in relation to these matters, I find it very difficult to frame my own adoptive history in terms of trauma. When we start talking about reunion and meeting those who were at the so-called origin, that's when it got a bit traumatic, but not the adopted subjectivity itself. So I just wonder sometimes if, if, if there's opportunities at events like this, you know, for us all just to keep open that sense of variety we were thinking about a moment or two ago, not least because I think we've got to watch there are not, you know, other cliches of adoptive subjectivity or adoptive relations that might, you know, even, even in a very sympathetic way, overpower the specificity of those lives and those relations, um, which are not readily computable, perhaps, in even the most um, sympathetic available models. Well, one of the things, I, th I think you're absolutely right, John. I, I think also, I mean, anybody in the so-called triad is pathologized in the literature on adoption, and whether it's psychology, psychiatry, the core, uh, the law, uh, you know, just in popular culture. Um, and I, I, I think that that is one of the things that for me is often a, a, a point of interest in that I like to flip things back and treat adoption as a critical lens for looking at the norms that have been set up about what a family is, is supposed to be, what a family subject is supposed to be, and how adoption and or, uh, the ways in which people with adoptive relationships uh, in whatever corner of the the triad they end up in, even as that's a dated phrase, um, <clears throat> offer us also a lens to challenge our ideas about what parents are, what siblings are, what families are. Um, and it's interesting in terms of your point about trauma, in that, for instance, there's a great debate in the in the you know increasing debate in the context of feminism, where historically, as feminists started to push back on, gender inequality, um, you know, the vic uh, they might use the word victim, but trauma wasn't necessarily associated with it. The idea of having been victimized by patriarchy was actually a, a rallying cry for, you know, reacting and activism and being quite active, not being debilitated and, you know, um, you know um, a, 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 a sniveling mess or something as a result of having been traumatized. There wasn't the pathology associated with it. And I think one of the things, as it relates to a lot of adoption rights um, questions, is we are in a time in history where many people, in order to access their rights, have to present themselves 
as somehow traumatized and the right is restoring, um, you know, uh, their psyche. And um, while that can accomplish certain things in terms of fights for rights, it can also contribute to things that are undermining as well, because you're still conforming to a norm when you should just have the right and not have to demonstrate your pathology in order to get it. So, um, you know, I think that's a, a very interesting point that you make. And I, I, I also recognize the strategy in terms of accessing rights, but I also think it comes at a cost. Um, also, too, because you lose people in a movement who don't identify in that way. It can also, it can divide people. And so that there has to be, as you know, you wrote about and presented at the, comp at the symposium, um, there has to be, a room, be room for a plurality of experiences for the best outcomes in terms of, of fighting for things. So That's so spot on. <laughs> yeah. If nothing else, that, that's, we should memorize what Francis just said. We have it recorded. I'm going <laughs> to laminate it and put it up around the yeah. thing. But yeah. But I think, when John, when you also, I want to comment just what you, um, you brought up multiplicity. And when we started uh, one of these investigations and we asked adoptees, you know, what have you experienced? What have you been exposed to? What have you survived? Um, and that is so complicated to put down in one or two words. Uh, instead, we actually ended up with now, I think we had 58 categories of violations. Um, and so I think maybe that's what we understand uh, instinctively as adoptees, that adoptees is not a single thing, you know. Uh, and when we talk about violations or human breaches of human rights, it's anything from, you know, my papers seem to not be correct, so I can't get access to them. Plus, you know, I remember I was kidnapped. I remember I was in an institution where I was violated or abused. It's all of that. And so when we're met with these, to be honest, rather simple expectations, you're adopted. Did you find your mom and dad? It does, doesn't really click in any way at all. And so definitely, you know, I think if we can accept that adoption is, is irrelevant and is a, a contemporary issue, hopefully people would, you know, as a minority, not group us into one dimension, but understand that there are all of these different experiences. Um, and if you want to communicate with uh, us, uh, then it, it might require a little bit of, um, you know, preparation and just respect from what, what we have uh, experienced and the different histories that there are and have formed uh, the time that we live in now. But Definitely just saying you're adopted and then though, oh, well, you know, probably your mother was poor or something like that. It's really extremely, you know, uh, oversimplifying to an extent where, I mean, it becomes a bit of an um, offense to, to assume that. Uh, so I think the reason or the reason why I appreciate so much what you've done with this seminar is to show all these different um, disciplines, these different worlds and different lenses that you can look at adoption at. Uh, so we don't end up oversimplifying it or, um, you know, over, how do I say? Yeah, oversimplify it. Yeah. yeah, we do tend to be. There are a few stereotypes of us out there uh, <laughs> ranging from, you know, the, the be afraid, you know, be careful, be, be fearful, um, you know, or the punchline. Mm. So many examples I could give, but I won't. <laughs> But I could, so many examples of, you know, popular culture and stuff where it's, 
well, I'll get, okay, I'll do Loki because he's my favourite. But, you know, in the Avengers, don't mind my brother, he's adopted. And I think, really, I've come to the cinema to see a bit of Marvel. And there it is. So Emily and I were chatting before. We talked about Elf and Will Farrell. So, you know, you've got your adoption. You can so, I can sort of forgive him because it is, you know, he's sort fun. Of, yeah. him <laughs> I can just about forgive because he's running around you know, in the mustard tights. He's making himself colourful and funny. But there's so many others. You can be really enjoying a good book and in pops a throwaway comment, you know, like, ah, I'd put you in the care if you weren't over 16. And I think, A, not funny. And, so, and we, we talked rehoming yesterday came up somehow through the online participants were good weren't they we got some very good um voices coming in you know from, from the zoom and yeah the the the, the rehoming thing there, there was one moment yesterday which completely blew my mind and it was a, uh, i think it was during the conversation between um uh the justice yeah and um a member, an online contributor, who I think was, um, I forget their name, but was was connected to the Scottish adult uh, adoption movement, I think. Yeah, S-A-A-M. Fee. 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 Yeah. Yes. I think it was Fee. And please do correct me, you know, if if, if I, but my memory isn't that great, especially after the conference dinner uh, last night, <laughs> I have to say, um, and the joyful conviviality of that occasion, where I think there was, there was um, I think we were reminded that in, in the UK, um, when one was adopted, uh, the uh, one's first or original birth certificate is cancelled, yeah, and it's replaced by another one which has the legal name on it. So it's not as if you had one birth certificate and then you had another. The, the first one is cancelled completely, so you start again with one. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was Fee who, who asked how asked the the member of the judiciary why can't that first birth certificate be reanimated? recharged why, why can't i have access to that as my documentary evidence of my origin which had never ever occurred to me all these years of you know being an adoptee and thinking about adoption um and it was that kind of it's that kind of questioning it's that kind of um attention to the um uh the shortcomings perhaps and the constraints of the law i found was Absolutely, I'd never thought of it in that way, or thought of documentation in that way in, in, in the British context. So that was I'm just reporting this. I just thought it was one of those kind of magnificent moments where actually coming together from a different range of positions is, you know, is utterly educative. Well, I also thought the um, the comments related to documents in terms of restoring uh, national origins so with a passport, or um, so if you are a transnational adoptee. Um, and it strikes me that it's easier. I only know this because I have two friends in Canada whose grandfathers were Irish. And as a result of having a, an Irish grandparent, we're able to get an Irish passport. So if it's that easy being, you know, two generations away to get a passport, why wouldn't there also be a way for uh, an adoptee who's only one generation away from uh, their you know, a uh, parent in their the in the country from which they originated. Why wouldn't they be able to get their national identity or status, um, you know, uh, 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 back uh, in some easy fashion? I mean, it, just because it is so easy for these people, uh, you know, on by virtue of this biological tie. So um, I just I found that 
that contradiction in terms of uh, who has what rights. Mm. Um, you know, when we were talking about that, um, very troubling. You know, it seems that should be something that should be much easier at, mm-hmm. if that is indeed what the person wants. It doesn't have to be this hard. Korea has has done a little bit in that direction, and so adoptees are actually eligible for uh, Korean citizenship. Then the funny thing, which is obviously not funny, but we found out that a lot of the adoptees have been switched, so they've been sent in another person's identity, but their switched identity is then, you know, the legal identity. So I had a friend who wanted to get back her Korean citizenship, but she would have to do that in the switched identity, in the identity that she at that point knew was not her, then switch to that, then get the Korean citizenship in a name that is not her, and then after that go through another process to then go back to what would be her original identity. And so I, I think what we see now, obviously because we get older and so we, we do, you know, we're more visible in society, but these are really issues that come with being adopted. Mm. This is not unique. I mean, I think we all have examples that are equally really unthinkable um, from friends and from ourselves, maybe. You, you remind me of, of, of a film. Um, I'm a great admirer of a director called uh, Diane Bourchet Liam. Yes. I'm sure yes. you know it in the matter of Cha Jung Hee, I think it's called. Yes. And, and it deals with exactly that yes. kind of process that, her, that she was... Um, when she moved to the United States, she moved with an identity of another child that had been imposed upon her, I think, a few months before the plane took off, to the extent that a photograph was swapped in in the documents. And you think, well, that's, there's one example. Um, to hear there are thousands is chilling. That's, that's the truth for now, at least, that we know. Yeah. And yet there are those who would say, but it's not trafficking. What is it then? Please, please explain. Please tell us what it might be. I only had, I suppose, a slightly, well, I had two, but I'll maybe, I'll park Nancy Verrier because it's just because interesting in the last couple of weeks, you're the second person. I know, look, <laughs> as John starts to combust, but she, she's written, uh, she's an adoptive mom. She wrote, wrote a very famous book called The Primal Wound that basically tells us we're all wounded and traumatized and broken and from birth because your mother's gone. And Yes, I don't, you're not happy with it. I have many friends who aren't happy with, with that. They're saying like it's quite insulting. I, I sort of think, oh, I'm broken? Yeah, I can live with that. I'm, I'm glued back together. Sylvia Plath got glued back together, put me back together with twine and tapers. Um, or the, the, the beautiful pottery that has the gold inlay, you know. It's a bit convenient, Others isn't it? Are, it's a bit, you know, there's your meta-narrative. If it gets me funding, if I get extra funding for being special, <laughs> I'm very venal. And so, you know, whatever will, if it, if it gets, you know, if it stops me being discriminated against, you know, I'm a cheap date. What can I say? I'm like, give me whatever, you know, work. But I do take the point. I just thought it was interesting that within the space of two weeks, you were the second person to say, oh, I hate that, that book. You know, I, I don't like that, that notion. It drives me crazy too. And, and you, <laughs> I mean, it's not... I think it represents a very strong idea in our culture about what the, what the biological bond, the biological tie is. Um, for me, it's the naturalized, because of course there, there are mothers. I mean, it puts a lot of pressure on women as mothers. I mean, you know, one need only think of all the women who suffer postpartum. I mean, it's, they're pathologized as suffering postpartum depression. It might just be, oh my God, I bought into this fairy tale of motherhood and now that I'm here, I think, what have I done? And boy, am I ever depressed. 
about the life I have to live in order to, uh, you know, to realize this ideal of motherhood. So I, and I think, you know, again, you know, there's not one size fits all for women either as mothers. And so um, this idea that every woman who has a baby is necessarily going to be attached to it and be a great parent um, is a lot of pressure on women as well. Um, and I think that also speaks to the pathology of everybody in the, the triad, for instance, as it relates uh, to mothers who might have relinquished, uh, you know, uh, a child as opposed to surrendered a child. So uh, because there are some women who make those choices, they may have some regrets, but under their circumstances or what have you, they have made a decision that they could live with that best suited them at the time and they felt best suited the child at the time. So I think all of the stories are complicated. And even if a majority of women, um, there are a majority of women who surrendered as opposed to relinquished, it also means the women who did relinquish, if they did, um, are marginalized even within the broader group of people who still might want to have connections to their children that were adopted. Um, because if you confessed that you relinquished willingly for whatever reason, people might see you as a monster as well. So, and that's one of the things that mothers who have surrendered or, or relinquished face if and when at a later date or at any time they want to maintain their connections with their children. So, you know, I think it's, it's all of these things are complicated for a lot of reasons. So, um, anyway. Just thought I'd yeah. throw that in there based <clears throat> on my my my, trem my trembling. Um, I, mean, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would want to put against the primal wound position Emily Hipchin's paper that we listened to um, a, day, a day or so ago, where she invited us to think about adoptee difference, I think was her phrase, mm -hmm. as not that different to other forms of difference and to account for the specificity of uh, specificities of adopted life in a more agile dimensional, imaginative, and maybe more accurate way, more sensitive to the, the varieties of intersection that, that may well be empowering us and constraining us and, and producing us. And I think I would rather go down, and it comes back to things we were talking about 10 minutes or so ago, I would rather go down that path and try to think with that kind of um, opportunity than perhaps to park intellectually my car in one position. And, and this will sound more um, uh, unkind than it's meant to be, um, but rather than be told by someone who's never met me who I am. No, that's a fair comment. Nobody <laughs> likes to be told who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they ask, who do you think you are? <laughs> Very true. Um, and then my other sort of, maybe not final question, but coming come near final, um, when we talked about... Um, Tying in with nationality, citizenship, passports, um, being able to just have that link to the ancestry. My own axe to grind is because I was a Quebec adoptee, I lose out on the Newfoundland indigenous heritage because I can't prove that link. Even though I'm in reunion and even though the mothership has offered to go in and talk to whoever needs spoken to, we can't make that link. I can't get my you know, the tribal membership. Not that I'm not going to move over anytime soon, um, but it would be quite nice. So yeah, Canadian passport 
I cannot get. I have a certificate of citizenship, but not a birth certificate. And I think, why is there so much as a lawyer? Why is there magic in the piece of paper? The piece of paper can open up everything. It can start your fairy tale. It can start your nightmare. It can block doors. It's, it can be falsified, redacted, falsified, lost in a fire, lost in a flood, <laughs> these magical bits of paper. Um, I just wondered what people thought about the magic of the piece of paper. Well, put it this way. Um, well, two things to say, but very, uh, very briefly. Um, first of all, to take that phrase, the magic of the piece of paper. When I got all my documentation through, when I was searching for for it and and, and requested it, you know, in 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 the UK, um, I didn't get a series of magic documents that somehow in in which the spell that unraveled my personhood was waiting. I got documents that actually bore witness to the mendacity and the unprofessionalism of those who were involved in rearranging my my kinship. That's the first thing. Second thing I'll say very, very briefly is I've never in my life, I made a decision I was not going to think of myself or position myself in terms of belonging through the biogenetic route, okay? And my birth mother was from the west of Ireland. Um, but I've, I've always said, no, I'm not, I'm not Irish. You know, I was raised by Scottish parents in England. That's, and that kind of exhausts where things are. And now we have Brexit. And as a British person, British passport holder who no longer has rights of access to the EU in the ways that I used to, um, as I understand things, because I've got an Irish birth mother, I have a right to Irish citizenship. And for the first time in my life, that's attractive. And I'm, I'm seriously thinking, well, do I, do I activate that right if it is empowering to me as a global citizen? Yeah. So, and I hate that, actually. I don't really want to do that because in a sense it would I would be claiming something that's legally recognizable, but for me as a subject is not legitimate for me. It's not how I would position my myself in terms of kinship and belonging and cultural identity and those kinds of things. So I'm rather torn. So and maybe maybe the image of a torn document might be appropriate oh, here. Oh, I like that. I'm thinking airport cues. Trust me as an Irish passport holder. You get it's very it's quite gratifying and obviously did not vote for Brexit. It's very gratifying when you walk past. It's, it's I'm me. I'm not a good person. I'm quite mean. But you, there's there's the quick lane for yes, the EU people. And the, you've seen this. It's amazing yes. to see. <laughs> on the way oh, in. Yeah, sorry, they were warned. They still voted <laughs> to leave. Um, but well, lots yeah. of us didn't. I have to say as well. I know. know. <laughs> yes, no, I know. Not not looking <laughs> in in your direction. But ah, keep me posted. I'd like to know if you if you go for your Irish passport. I think you should. You should. Why not? Just airport cues. There's your justification. Maybe. Sometimes you just have to be practical. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it is. Yeah. And then the very final one. We talked about terminology and the names of things, the representations of, of things. And I thought something we didn't maybe quite get on till until quite late, sort of yesterday, um, I know birth mother, that was a term that was talked about in, in, in the Irish investigations, the UK one, and it was decided that mother is a better term. And some of the mothers who gave evidence said about they were, one of their concerns was they didn't want it to be portrayed that they voluntarily relinquished. They didn't want their child to be thinking, I didn't put up a fight. You see that sometimes in freeing order cases here, you'll get the odd statement from a, a mother saying, the reason why I'm not consenting. I don't want this child to look back someday and think that I didn't want to keep them. And it's just the, the I guess the, the power of the power of words there 
Um, and some of the mothers said about being doubly stigmatized. It wasn't just you had a child out of wedlock, you then did the second cardinal sin of easily parting, easily parting with them. Um, even though some of them, quite heartrending stories of just coming back and the child was gone. Or they would hide the magic of little objects. They would try and hide a letter, hide an object with them. And they would say, I hope the nuns or social workers don't take this away. We know that quite possibly they might have because, you know, as you said, falsified names, names being changed. So I just thought I'd throw that happy thought out there. To so maybe not so much on the terminology, but what um, keeps happening in Korea right now is um, we see... Uh, um, Religious association, uh, religious groups associated with the adoption industry um, have this term, uh, no shame, no blame, no name, that they use uh, for advocating for the baby box. Um, and, and so the baby box is illegal, but they keep popping up and nothing is being done with that. Um, and obviously, it's much easier to remove a child that doesn't really exist in the system. You can just launder their identity and everybody gets a clean slate, can start all over. Um, and and then knowing that that is happening now, I, I think it, it shows where, you know, the foundation of adoption, where you do need to, um, you, do need, you do need to shame a certain group of people uh, to bring them into this position where they want to voluntarily, in quotes, to, to give up the child. Um, but I heard that in Wales that recently there have been an apology actually for just that, where they go back and say it is for shaming the mothers, you know, that we want to, what, set the record straight or do things right right now. Um, I could only wish that that filtered over uh, to Korea so so you don't bring people into this position um, where there really is very little choice. And the, the inheritance of stigma. So it doesn't, it affects, it goes up, it goes down. You've got grandparents thinking, you know, were we to blame? Were we complicit? You know, you've got the children, the children of adoptees saying, well, there's a broken link back up there. Or that's something my mother didn't speak about. So you, quite, you can pack quite a lot of generations into, you know, one, one act. I think with the nomenclature, um, we have to address people how they want to be addressed. That's the same in every context, you know? Um, so whether it's mother, birth mother, first mother, we, you know, we need to listen and, you know, be sensitive to those self-articulations. I think in my own thinking, and in my own writing, I tend to default towards birth mother because I'd like to remind, especially the non-adopted, that these women were not permitted to mother. Yeah, um, And if, if mothering might be thought of at one level as a, a continual process of the delivery of care, yeah? that, that, was not, that, that right was not granted to them, yeah? post-contract. Post post so I think, I think the, 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 the suffix does important historical work and I've always myself, and I might be wrong about this, I suspect I am, um, blanched a little bit about first mother, second mother. Because I, like, I don't like the kind of ordinal system that's, that, that seems to translate into, into primary, secondary. Um, that I don't really want birth, my birth mother or my mum kind of positioned a bit like a league table 
you know, in, in sport, you know, well, there's one and then there's two. Um, I'd like to think of them more as in, in other ways. So I just worry a little bit about counting. I'd like to count them or account for them differently than a strictly numerical kind of kind of model. So those are those from an adopt one adoptee position. Those are my kinds of um, kind of quibbles. And then as an aside, talking you're talking there about the tokens um, that that are sometimes left with um, unfamily children. If you ever go to the Foundling Museum in London, yeah, they have a collection of tokens that they have on display. Of 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 yeah, little coins or messages or stamped bits of metal that uh, that were left with children in in previous centuries. It's quite something. They're tiny. It's quite something to witness. Yeah. And my colleague at the at the University of Leeds, Professor John Wyle, who's also a poet, has written a fantastic poem called Token, where he reflects upon um, upon these uh, these these items as he writes. I think at one point, um, uh, scarred with kisses. Which I think is a remarkable way of imagining, um, imagining the tokens. So um, it's a plug for the for London's Foundling Museum next time you're over. I shall do. I shall do that. Yes. Or... Yeah, the, the idea of having an object that was held in the hand by, you know, your mother or your father or what have you. I mean, uh, I think that speaks to many, many people for many different reasons. It, um, you know. Even if you're not an adoptee, if you have a parent who's passed, those objects, I mean, people can identify with your experience um, as an adoptee just with that, how profound that is as well, um, having that object that would have been held in the hand and given, and here it is, something tangible, something material. Yeah. I mean, that's a very powerful thing. Even more so maybe than the piece of paper. Well, mm -hmm. I was just going then, to add to that that, <laughs> that that's why I think we can get a bit obsessed with our documents and talk about original documents. And we want, you know, the front page and the back page and the potential, you know, stickers or pictures or images, anything that came with that. We want all of that, not necessarily to find family, uh, but because that's part of a history. So it's part of me. It's part of what happened to me in those first days, months or years. Um, everything is valuable, and so I think we can get stuck. Um, yeah, a bit with the law when they say, you know, you have the right to to certain documents. Um, in Korea, we have the right to 51 pieces of information. So it's all rewritten and comes out on, you know, in a new word form. Uh, but it was obviously not computerized when we were adopted, and I think it's just that sense. It's a lot with the feelings. It's that sense, and also with belonging. You know, this is mine. Um, I have that. If I want, then I can make it public. But why on earth do these public officials have access to my documents and the social workers um, when it's piece of my personal history? I think that can um, that can be frustrating. <laughs> well, it's a rights violation. Give me my stuff. Yes. You know, give me my, my, I want to know my birth name and I want to know, you know, where my eyes came from. So I want to throw that out there because I'm sure there will be a lot of um, qualified legal experts listening um, that how is it possible that a private company can hold personal information? Because we're dehumanized. We, 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 are, we don't have human rights. They've dehumanized us. They've orphanized us. I could go on. But, you know, what? That's, that's how they do it. It's discrimination and they, they justify it by saying, well, you know, there's other. Privacy rights over here. We made these promises, and that hence you can't you can't have them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what a lot of the you know the international and domestic law would say. 
just my take on it. I could be, I could be but wrong. But even but in the EU with the GDPR, I mean, I have the right to go and have all information about me deleted if I want, you know, from buying shoes or being a member anywhere. But somehow I don't have the right to know what happened to me the first couple of months of my life. Um, that's a problem. Yeah, we're not to be trusted. They fear us, which is a pity. We get there. We'll gradually well, overturn some cars now. <laughs> we'll start our, our protest. Unless anyone has maybe a final reflection or a a quick vent, are we done? I can sense tray bakes have arrived. Maybe sandwiches, I don't know. You come up for coffee. Get a wee. You've got other stuff. <laughs> I would just like to thank you, Alice Diver, for having organized this and brought all of us together and your outstanding work in organizing the speakers, the uh, program, uh, the great care you took of all of us in terms of making sure we were safely ensconced in lovely hotels. And um, I would also like to thank Susan Burton <laughs> for everything she did. We will pass uh, that on. To, uh, to bring us all here as well. Um, and all the people that have, have worked to make this just an outstanding symposium. I, I really have enjoyed this week. You're and very welcome. And thank yeah, you all for yeah. traveling over. Oh, you're the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I'm here all week. Uh, no, but thank you guys as well for, for coming over and for talking so frankly and just giving me your, t indulging me and giving me your, your time, putting up with me.